There are different types of nuclear test. There is the big whopping test, which is to see if the thing works. Does it explode? Burst? Detonate? Blow up? Does it illuminate the desert's chilly dawn or gouge an island out of the ocean? There's that type. The scary type. The noticeable type. And then we have weapons effects tests where we don't want to show off or intimidate or astonish. We just want to know what the brute does to other things. What will this bomb do to a bunch of tanks or ships or planes or animals which have been tethered nearby? What will it do to buildings and different types of structures? That's why we have the famous images from the Nevada testing site of houses and mannequins and bank vaults out there on the range. That's why Ponderosa pine trees were chopped down and hauled to Nevada and then planted in wet concrete and subject to nuclear blast. You can find the famous footage of that on YouTube and see the massive trees bending and straining under the shockwave. Some of them snapping and collapsing, others pinging back upright as though the trunks were made of elastic. And there's another type of test. So okay, we've checked whether the bomb works and we've studied what it can do to pine trees and bank vaults. But what happens if the bomb itself is attacked? What if the thing catches fire or the bomber transporting it crashes and it all goes down in a fiery explosion? Will it detonate? And if so, what will happen? Will we see a conventional explosion or a nuclear one? How much abuse can these things take? Can you poke it with a stick? Can you tell it it's ugly? Can you kick it? Can it withstand a petrol fire? Can it withstand a plane crash? In the early 50s and 60s, the British carried out 31 of these tests in Australia at the Maralinga test site. And today we're going to find out a bit more about them. The Americans did a lot of their nuclear testing at home in Nevada and the Soviets kept theirs within the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan or up in the Arctic Ocean at Novaya Zemlya. Britain couldn't do the same. She couldn't keep it within her own borders 
and had to look outside for a nuclear test site. This is because the US and the USSR were, of course, gigantic geographically and could, in theory, conduct tests far from any populated areas. Not so with Britain, which is relatively tiny and very, very busy, teeming with towns, stuffed with cities. Set off a nuke in Britain and everyone is going to put their teacup down, go to the window and say, what the bloody hell was that? Is it Bindi? So Britain needed a wide open, empty space to conduct its tests. And she obviously couldn't find that at home. Now, ideally, she wouldn't have needed that at all because her atomic scientists would have been out in the Nevada sunshine, working happily alongside the Americans as we had in the Manhattan Project. But after the war, America decided to close off cooperation with other countries on nuclear weapons. Fearing that America would once again turn isolationist and leave Europe to the mercy of the Soviets, and also figuring that we needed one of those nuclear bombs of our own if we were to keep our global standing, Britain decided to go ahead and make her own atomic bomb. And of course, going it alone meant no Nevada test site. So we turned to Australia, who of course had close cultural ties with Britain, and we started testing our nuclear weapons off the coast of northwestern Australia at the Montebello Islands, at Emu Field in South Australia, before finally settling on Maralinga, also in South Australia, as a permanent testing site. Now, there are hundreds of stories to be told about all of those nuclear tests and about all of those Australian locations. And now that I've finished writing my book, I suppose we can do some really deep dives into them. But for today, we're going to focus on the smaller tests carried out at Maralinga, those which are known as the minor tests, those which asked if a nuclear bomb can withstand attack, fire and explosion. And we'll see that even though they were called the minor tests, they were actually the most damaging in terms of contaminating Australian land. Maralinga test range in the stark, wide open spaces of South Australia. Operation Buffalo involved setting up a village for servicemen taking part. And the team of scientists was headed by Sir William Penny, seen arriving to supervise and observe the atomic explosions. Tanks were one of several target response items, 25-pounders and ak guns were another. How would they stand up to the explosions at various distances? All had to be tested first, of course. He's got a hangover already, but it's nothing to the headache that's coming to him and his pals. Special camera tires were built to make the film record we'll see in a moment. Quite an assignment, I should think. And for everyone present, the few seconds before each device is exploded must arouse a feeling of extreme nervous tension.
dozens of tracer rockets crisscross the impressive and symmetrical atomic cloud formation, playing their part in the scientific record of the burst. There were seven big nuclear tests at Maralinga, carried out under Operation Buffalo and Operation Antler. But most of the site's contamination came from the little tests, the minor trials, as they were called. Now, they were called minor because they were not nuclear explosions. They produced no blinding flash and no terrible blast wave and no ominous mushroom cloud. These were what were known as subcritical tests, meaning they were designed to produce no yield. So you're testing nuclear material, sure, but the test will not produce a nuclear explosion. That's not to say they didn't produce a hell of a lot of radioactive contamination. So the British called these tests minor trials and then changed the name to assessment tests. The name change was because of the moratorium on nuclear testing, which began in 1958. And the British were worried that with the moratorium coming, that Minor trials wouldn't be a good name because that suggests they were trials of minor nuclear weapons, which would have then, of course, been banned. So they changed it to assessment tests. But then they realised that wasn't a great name either because that contains the word test. And it's nuclear tests that are being banned. So they changed it again to the Maralinga Experimental Programme. No mention in that of the word test, and no mention of the word nuclear either. So the Maralinga Experimental Programme conducted lots of different experiments, and they all had different names. Rats and Tims and Kittens and Vixens. Different names given to these strange, small, little experiments. Kittens, Tims and Rats all looked at the individual components of a nuclear bomb and they wanted to test what the thing can withstand without bursting into an apocalyptic mushroom cloud. For example, they studied what happens to a weapons nuclear core when it's subject to a shockwave. But today we're zooming in on the Vixen experiments. The Vixens wanted to know what happens to a nuclear weapon if there's an accident, if there's a fire, an explosion, or a plane crash, for example. Will the thing detonate in full? Will it go up in a massive nuclear explosion? And will it throw out lots of radioactivity? And to find these results, the Vixen test subjected a nuclear warhead to a controlled petrol fire an electric furnace and high explosive. Now, subjecting nuclear warheads to fires and furnaces and explosions might sound a bit like they were mucking about around in Maralinga, prodding and poking at a nuclear warhead just for laughs. Of course they weren't. There were a number of near misses, a number of quite terrifying potentially disastrous accidents involving nuclear bombs in the 1960s, which showed that it wasn't incredible at all to imagine that 
a nuclear bomb could be subject to fire and explosion and plane crash because it happened, it actually happened. In 1966, for example, a B-52 flying over Spain and carrying four hydrogen bombs was involved in a deadly mid-air collision. It lost all four of its bombs, which fell from the plane when it broke apart in the air. Three of the bombs landed near a Spanish village called Palomares, and two of them exploded. They didn't explode, of course, there was no nuclear explosion, but the conventional explosives in the bomb went off, spreading contamination. The fourth bomb fell into the sea, and it was lost for months. A similar incident happened over North Carolina in 1962. A B-52 took off on an airborne alert and it was loaded with hydrogen bombs. Airborne alert, uh, that was a tactic used by the American Air Force in the late 50s into the late 60s. And the idea was they would keep at least some of their nuclear bombers airborne at all times. Up there, flying and fully loaded with nukes, ready to head off to their target if needed. The thinking there was that A surprise Soviet attack uh, can't take out all of our nuclear bombers if some of them are already aloft. So at every moment, constantly, America had some nuclear bombers up there, ready to go. Of course, that system was risky because it meant you had bombers flying with nukes unnecessarily. And that's what we saw in this terrible incident above North Carolina. The plane in question had been in the air on its airborne alert for more than 10 hours and had refuelled in the air twice. After its second refuelling, it was noticed that the fuel was leaking from the right wing and what began as a spray of fuel soon became a gushing leak. The bomber was ordered to dump its fuel and make an emergency landing, but the plane's left wing couldn't lose any fuel. So the right wing is gushing, the left wing can't lose any, so we had a weight imbalance. Therefore the massive bomber went into an uncontrolled spin. On board there was an explosion, the plane began to break apart. As it fell, the captain ordered his men to bail out. Incredibly, the flight lieutenant managed to jump out of the escape hatch whilst the bomber was flying upside down. He survived, but sadly three of the crew died. And the plane, as it plummeted to the earth, its two hydrogen bombs fell out. Here's a quote from Eric Schlosser's brilliant book, Command and Control, which tells us what happened next. The B-52 was carrying two Mark 39 hydrogen bombs, each with a yield of four megatons. As the aircraft spun downwards, centrifugal forces pulled a lanyard in the cockpit, 
The lanyard was attached to the bomb release mechanism. When the lanyard was pulled, the locking pins were removed from one of the bombs. The Mark 39 fell from the plane. The arming wires were yanked out and the bomb responded as though it had been deliberately released by the crew above a target. The pulse generator activated the low-voltage thermal batteries. The drogue parachute opened and then the main chute. The barometric switches closed. The timer ran out, activating the high-voltage thermal batteries. The bomb hit the ground and the piezoelectric crystals inside the nose crushed. They sent a firing signal. But the weapon didn't detonate. Every safety mechanism had failed, except one. The ready, safe switch in the cockpit. The switch was in the safe position when the bomb dropped. Had the switch been set to ground or air, the X-unit would have charged, the detonators would have triggered, and a thermonuclear weapon would have exploded in a field near Pharaoh. North Carolina. When Air Force personnel found the Mark 39 later that morning, the bomb was harmlessly stuck in the ground, nose first, its parachute draped in the branches of a tree. So, spectacular good luck prevented a thermonuclear explosion on the ground at North Carolina. Spectacular good luck plus a chain of safety mechanisms, but as Eric Schlosser told us, Every one of them failed but one, which was a simple switch in the cockpit. So as we see there from the North Carolina incident, you can build lots of safety mechanisms into your bomb to prevent it detonating in a crash. But on the ground at Maralinga, the Vixen experiments were testing out what happens without those intricate safety mechanisms. What happens if you're simply throwing fire and explosion at a nuclear warhead. How much can it withstand before it detonates? There were two types of Vixen tests. Those known as Vixen A set fire to nuclear warheads and then monitored the results. After the fires, balloons would be sent up into the air to collect samples and monitor the contamination, how much radioactive material has been released. But the tests known as Vixen B were a bit more (laughs) brutal. In Vixen B tests, they would actually blow up nuclear warheads, trying to simulate the effects of the bomb, a nuclear bomb, being involved in a plane crash. These warheads would be placed on huge steel structures known as a feather bed. And the feather bed sat on a concrete pad. You would lay out your feather bed, place a warhead on top of it, and then blow the thing up. New feather beds had to be assembled for each experiment, as the damage was so huge. After each feather bed had been blown up, the debris would be dumped in pits near the concrete firing pad. Big mounds of twisted steel, contaminated lead bricks and cables, and also contaminated concrete 
and lots of soil which had been gouged up by the explosion. It was these Vixen B tests which caused the most contamination to the Maralinga site, even more than the big atmospheric nuclear tests. The results showed that you could hit the nuclear warhead with quite a lot, you could throw explosions and fire at the thing, and you might not trigger a full-scale nuclear detonation, but you would throw up a hell of a lot of plutonium which would be scattered across the area. There was extensive use of balloons during these minor trials, and they often provoked a bit of chaos. In September 1960, eight so-called captive balloons were prepared for the experiments the following morning. They were duly raised into the air and moored in place. Six of them would be used to gather information, and two of them would collect meteorological measurements. But the experiment was cancelled due to predicted windy conditions, Weather reports from Maralinga said we could expect winds of between 60 and 107 miles per hour. With such winds picking up, it was deemed unsafe to send men out to bring the balloons back down. There was a risk if they had done that, according to a report, of dust contamination and flying cables. So the captive balloons would stay in place. So the massive balloons stayed tethered to the ground, and then the high winds came rolling in. And yes, you've guessed it, the next morning it was reported that seven of them had got loose and floated away. Now these were huge balloons, you know, not something you'd find at a party. The biggest escaped balloon, according to a report, was 1,000 feet long. And the smallest, 350 feet. So try making a balloon animal out of that. Five of the escaped balloons were captured while still on the Maralinga test site. But two others, like naughty puppies, just would not be caught. One of them drifted away and was finally apprehended near the mining town of Kobar. But the other rogue balloon was not captured until October. Now, balloons were being uh, used quite often in nuclear testing, not just in Maralinga, but um, in America too, because they allow you to have an airburst, which of course is safer because airbursts produce less fallout because they're not happening on the ground and therefore they're not gouging up lots of dust and soil, which then comes back to Earth as fallout. If you have your... Nuclear test, of course, up in the air, there is less fallout and so less danger to any nearby population. But to get the thing in the air, you normally would have to build a tower and then perch the thing on the top of the tower, as happened in the very first nuclear test, the Trinity test. So an alternative to having to endlessly construct towers out in the middle of nowhere was to attach the thing to a balloon and raise the balloon and detonate it as it dangled from the gigantic balloon. And then, of course, if you weren't using the balloon in that manner, you could also use it in nuclear test by, as we saw here, having it go up into the air afterwards to collect meteorological samples. But the prospect of escaped balloons, of course, was real. 
especially on a nuclear test site, which tends to be open to the elements, open and flat, and so vulnerable to any winds which might come barreling across the landscape. Now, if your rogue balloons, as happened in Maralinga, take off and run, they're not really doing any damage. They, they might alarm any local populations to see these monsters come floating by, but they're not going to harm anyone because they don't have a nuke attached. But of course, there were nuclear tests happening elsewhere, which did literally have nuclear weapons dangling from them. And if that thing got loose, then yes, you can bet it could cause some damage. And so plans had to be made to quickly apprehend anything which escaped. And the last resort, of course, would have been shooting it down. I hope you've enjoyed our quick look at rogue balloons, uh, vixens and feather beds. Plenty more to talk about with the Australian tests, of course, and hopefully we can get back to that in the next few weeks. So thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, of course, to all my patrons and to my new patron, Heather Duff. Thank you, Heather, for signing up to support this podcast. If you'd like to consider supporting it through a monthly donation, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDevil, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website, juliemcdevil.com. And I'll be back next Monday with another episode.